Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. We shall not weary and we shall not rest. We are thousands strong to tell the world reverse Roe versus Wade. Welcome to Life After Dobbs. I'm Alexandra DeSanctis, and together with Ryan Anderson, I'm the co author of the new book, Tearing Us Apart How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Today, we'll talk with Ed Whalen, a distinguished senior fellow here at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Ed holds EPPC's Antonin Scalia Chair in Constitutional Studies and is the longest-serving president in EPPC's history, having held the position from March 2004 to January 2021. He directs EPPC's program on the Constitution, the courts, and the culture, and his expertise includes constitutional law and the judicial confirmation process. Ed's a regular contributor to National Review's Bench Memo's blog, and he's the co-editor of three volumes of the work of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, for whom he served as a law clerk. And in fact, Ed has served in positions of responsibility in all three branches of the federal government. He served in the Department of Justice and on Capitol Hill as general counsel to the U.S. Senate Committee on the Judiciary. Ed, thanks so much for joining us on this uh, historic day. Thanks for having me. We're uh, recording this shortly after the Supreme Court uh, issued its decision overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. So this is our our first podcast episode in the wake of that um, that just astonishing and wonderful decision. So um, we want to start certainly by thanking you, Ed, for all the work you did uh, both behind the scenes and at the forefront of the pro-life movement to, to bring this day about. Um, and, and could you start by telling us just a bit more about the ruling, um, what, what you make of the, the legal reasoning in Justice Alito's opinion? Well, sure. The uh, court majority, in an opinion by Justice Alito, um, overturned Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, two cases that together had set up a regime under which uh, uh, long-standing traditional bans on abortion were not permissible, and regulations of abortion were subject to uh, special heightened scrutiny. What the court ruled is that those cases were wrongly decided and should be overturned, and that uh, deferential rational basis review, to use the legal jargon, should instead apply to uh, regulations of abortion. Uh, as the court explains, what uh, rational basis review means is there's a great deal of deference to um, what legislatures enact. It's clear that uh, under that standard, it's entirely permissible for a state to bar abortion from conception. Indeed, uh, virtually every law that's been uh, enacted and struck down by, by uh, federal courts and state courts over the last uh, 30, 40 years um, ought to easily uh, pass this um, test of rational basis review. And, and what do you make of the fact that um, the leaked opinion is virtually uh, the same as the published opinion, with the exception of, you know, they respond to uh, the dissent and they respond to uh, the concurrence in judgment um, from the chief justice. And we'll go through the dissent and the concurrences and the concurrence in judgment in a minute. But what do you make of the fact that Alito really didn't have to make any revisions, even though this opinion had been out there for several weeks and, you know, all of the best legal minds in America who are pro-choice were, you know, critiquing it. uh, And yet, it seems like they didn't actually find anything wrong with it. Well, well the fact that the uh, final majority opinion is essentially the same as a leaked draft is exactly what I expected. Uh, the criticisms, uh, uh, you know, prolific uh, in number as they were, uh, ranged from the insubstantial to the ridiculous. I never saw anything that would have uh, uh, called for a change of anything. 
so uh, I think it's a testament to the uh, high quality of the draft that was uh, circulated initially. And what can you tell us about the Chief Justice's uh, his position on this? Because he was not with the majority, but he concurred in judgment, which is different than concurring. Explain to, to listeners the technicalities there and, and, and what you think that means going forward. Sure. Well, the Chief Justice wrote an opinion concurring in the judgment in which he agreed that the Mississippi 15-week ban uh, is constitutionally permissible. Um, but by concurring in the judgment, uh, he made clear that he did not agree with uh, the majority's overturning of Roe and Casey. As he explains, um, he thinks that Roe and Casey were wrong <laughs> in imposing a viability line. Uh, Casey had, in fact, um, declared that that viability line was the essence of Roe, but the chief chose to, I think, reconceive Roe and Casey as having some sort of uh, in, uh, in de- some sort of meaning independent from that viability line. And he said that in this case, he would just hold that those precedents mean that a, a woman has to have some clear chance to get an abortion. The 15-week law provides ample opportunity. And he would defer to some later case um, the question uh, whether or not to overturn Roe. A very disappointing opinion, uh, in my view, and in real tension with what the chief um, has said in the past. Um, but I think going forward, what is perhaps more significant is that I think it's very likely that the chief will be a sixth vote to treat today's Dobbs ruling as having uh, weighty stare decisis effect. In other words, I can't imagine that the chief um, would uh, be, be ready to uh, concoct some sort of um, constitutional right uh, to abortions, some sort of you know, that they would join in any sort of ruling saying that, that, that Dobbs was mistaken. So would you say, Ed, is it fair to, to say you think there's a, a five justice majority that would continue to vote against Roe and Casey or that there, you know, there's not going to be a reapplication of Roe and Casey, but that uh, the chief justice is not there? Uh, I'm sorry. I think I meant to say just the opposite. There's a six justice majority now, I think, that will give stare decisis effect to today's ruling in, in Dobbs. Well, I see. Okay. I see. So even though he would not have voted, he did not vote today to overturn Roe, he would continue, he'll just, you know, accept that that's what happened and will continue to go forward as if it, that's true. That's, yeah, that he, he will say, look, I wasn't part of that majority, but that's how the court ruled. Uh, I afford st- um, stare decisis effect to that ruling. I'm going to abide by it. Uh, I think that's what we can expect. I see. And maybe this is too much uh, tea leaf reading, but I'm certainly curious, and I assume uh, our listeners are too. What do you think kind of motivated Roberts not to go go along in full with the majority here? Well, uh, you know, one can look at it uh, at the level of uh, reading and trying to understand his text, or one can try to psychologize. Um, I'll stick to the former, um, though there may be a lot of room to do the latter. Uh you know, the chief um, often presents himself as a minimalist, as someone who um, doesn't see it um, necessary to do more than is needed to decide a case. And when he concludes that that, that way, he thinks it's, it's necessary not to do more than, than decide the case. So, uh, I, again, I don't think that that analysis um, really made sense here. I don't see how you can um, uh, slice and dice um, Casey and Roe in the way that he did, but uh, he obviously decided otherwise. What should we uh, make of the 
two concurrences, you know, one from Justice Kavanaugh, one from Justice Thomas. What about those concurrences? Um, did you find striking? What did you find disconcerting, if anything? How should we be thinking about those? Well, um, Justice Thomas, uh, while joining the Alito opinion in full, wrote separately to offer a sort of broadside against uh, what he aptly called the oxymoron of substantive due process, a um, notion that underlies um, a lot of the court's um, more adventuresome rulings. Uh, the majority uh, makes clear that it is not casting aspersions on these other uh, rulings, uh, but Justice Thomas um, is is happy to do so in his solo opinion. Uh, it's not surprising um, that Justice Thomas holds this view. He's 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 written it before. Um, the fact that no one has uh, joined him in the ruling, I think, um, adds weight to uh, the majority's statement that these other rulings um, are not at risk, or at least are not put at risk by the, the, the court's ruling in Dobbs. Uh, I think we see um, from Justice Thomas's opinion why uh, he and the or, or the chief, whoever did the assigning of the case, did not assign it to Justice Thomas, um, but instead to Justice Alito, who could write the opinion in a way that would um, basically uh, punt on the question of whether stare decisis, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, and whether substantive due process is sound, um, and just hold that even if it does have some validity, uh, there is no substantive due process right uh, to abortion. Justice Kavanaugh wrote a separate opinion in which he reiterated uh, much of what the majority had to say on uh, the wrongness of Roe and uh, the uh, stare decisis um, considerations, you know, that is the factors that go into um, whether or not you adhere to precedent. Uh, he also made clear his view, as I think, as I think the majority did, that he's not receptive to um, the constitutional personhood argument um, that that some have advanced. And he further outlined that that uh, in his view, um, uh, states cannot criminalize uh, traveling out of state for abortion. He had one other comment talking about this other matter was whether uh, uh, folks could be criminally prosecuted for abortions that occurred um, before Dobbs. Um, and he, he, he offered his view that they, that they could not be. So look, um, what you have is, um, are five justices who are firmly on board the majority opinion. Um, that, that, that's what counts. There will be some issues, um, that the court might need to address at some point in the coming years. But for the most part, uh, the court has said that this is a matter for the democratic processes to address. And we're going to have, um, this matter, uh, play itself out, uh, in the democratic processes, um, you know, often in ways that uh, the three of us aren't going to be happy with, but um, sometimes in ways that we will be. And, you know, in, in all events, giving us the opportunity to um, try to persuade our fellow citizens uh, uh, to, you know, re revise and revisit uh, um, uh, legislative resolutions that, that we're not entirely happy with. And could you tell us a bit, your, just your thoughts about the dissent? You know, to me, it, it seems pretty predictable, not anything um, I wouldn't have thought they would say, but you've probably read it more closely than me. What's kind of the, the argument they're making? Is it anything interesting or new and, and why does it fail? I have to uh, admit that at this point, I've only skimmed the dissent. I did not see anything there that was striking or, or uh, surprising. I think uh, Justice Alito um, 
in his in a brief three or four pages, pretty much uh, dispensed uh, with the arguments. Uh, but they offer, among other things, an exaggerated view of the court's obligation to adhere to precedent. Uh, it's an opportunistic um, account. It's not something that they've even lived up to in other cases. Uh, so uh, I, I think you know the, the dissent will be um, little remembered, as it, as it should be. Um, since we've walked through the opinion itself, um, you know, Alito's majority opinion, the chief's um, concurrence in the judgment, the the two concurrences, and and then the one dissent, um, could you help listeners understand how we got here? Because um, I mean, this is something you've been working on more or less your entire adult life. I mean, from the time that you were a clerk through your service in the government and the other branches of government now through, you know, 18, 19 years at EPPC, there was a lot that got us to this moment. Can can you, you know, share some of the highlights and the lowlights of how we got here? Sure. Well, I was a law clerk uh, for Justice Scalia in the year in which Planned Parenthood was uh, versus Casey was decided 30 years ago. Uh, and what a um, deep disappointment um, that decision was to me. Uh, in many ways, um, in my 30 years uh, since then, have been shaped by um, my unwillingness to acquiesce in the blather that Justices Kennedy, O'Connor, and Souter used to try to justify um, not overturning Roe. Uh, and I have to say, though, um, you know, that I never imagined back then that we would uh, enjoy a day like this. Um, a year after I was a law clerk for Justice Scalia, I was working for the Senate Judiciary Committee when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was overwhelmingly confirmed to replace uh, Justice Byron White, who, of course, had been a dis- dissenter in Roe versus Wade, as well as in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So you then had a, uh, you know, a six justice majority uh clearly in favor of Roe, and, and the, the prospects of ever uh, seeing it overturned uh, seemed dire indeed. But uh, I would highlight uh, two broad developments, and one can point to other particulars um, that, that, that explain um, how we got where we did. Um, one is that uh, the pro-life movement and the conservative legal movement did not heed uh, Casey's command that they give up on working uh, to um, defend the lives of unborn human beings and and uh, you know uh, work against unsound precedent. The pro-lifers have remained a powerful political force in the Republican Party ever since then. All the more so as uh, nearly all Democrats uh, abandoned the pro-life cause, and the conservative legal movement grew and flourished in a way that no one could have anticipated back then. Uh, thanks in large part to the Federalist Society, which gets a lot of criticism, um, uh, not just from the left, but from some conservatives. Um, but also thanks uh, in, in large measure to Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, who provided real intellectual leadership uh, for the conservative legal movement. And what happened over time is that uh, together, pro-lifers in the conservative legal movement drove Republican senators to, to fight for and against judicial nom- nominations on the ground of judicial philosophy in a way that they simply did not do when President Clinton appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and, and Stephen Breyer in 1993 and 1994. One episode I think really uh, encapsulates this. This was in the 2005 uh, 
when President George W. Bush nominated Harriet Myers, his White House counsel, someone who's really unknown in conservative legal circles, to fill the uh, vacancy that Sandra Day O'Connor uh, would create by stepping down. And uh, there was just a firestorm of opposition from the conservative legal movement. Uh, basically said, look, we have been fighting over the court for all these years in order to get powerful conservative leaders, justices of real intellectual heft. We don't want to see another mistake, another uh, David Souter, where you, you put someone unknown on for your own uh, you know, peculiar reasons. Uh, and although few of us said it in these terms back at the time, what we we're really saying is we want the sort of justice who could write a forceful opinion overturning Roe. And I don't, I don't mean to say anything disparaging about uh, Harriet Myers, but um, I think no one um, would imagine that she could have written an opinion like Alito's. And of course, weeks later, uh, Bush abandoned the Myers nomination and nominated uh, Samuel Alito. So that was just a, a historic episode. Um, more recently, of course, um, uh, you had Justice Scalia's uh, death in February 2016, the big fight over that vacancy, um, President Trump's uh, surprising uh, victory that November. You had uh, Senate Democrats' uh, historically idiotic abolition of the um, filibuster for Supreme Court nominees, which not only led to Neil Gorsuch's confirmation, but paved the way for uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett to be um, nominated and confirmed. So a whole host of things, but the, the, you know, most broadly, pro-lifers have continued uh, heroically to 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 make the message, um, to make sure uh, uh, new generations understand what's at stake here, and the conservative legal movement has been uh, very very powerful in opposing Roe and in working to get good justices confirmed. Well, like we said initially, Ed, thank you so much for all your work in, in that process. I know you've uh, played a really big part in, in a lot of what you were describing and um, really would not be here without all that work. So thank you. Um, and I'll just go to a, a last question here, kind of looking to the future and in particular the, the legal future of the pro-life movement. Um, there are already a, a pretty sizable number of states that, that are protecting or will very quickly move to protect unborn children in the wake of this ruling and probably another handful of you know, maybe a third of states that are kind of battlegrounds where pro-lifers will be working to put pro-life laws in place. What does this ruling mean for those laws? Now, certainly abortion supporters are still going to, to try and sue states over these laws, but will they be successful? Is there kind of any room for them under this ruling um, to, to take any of those laws down? Well, we need to distinguish between um, federal uh, legal grounds and state legal grounds. Um, what Today's ruling in Dobbs means is that um, there will not be any um, uh, serious prospect that um, state laws will be invalidated on federal constitutional grounds. Now, you may have some rogue judges out there who 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 issue orders that um, that 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 try to strike them down, that try to uh, you know, that misapply rational basis review. But basically, um, there's a free reign. Uh, you know, within very broad bounds for the states to enact uh, laws on abortion uh, without um, there being any sort of federal constitutional problem. You're going to see a shift um, to, uh, in, to in, in the states to arguments being made that um, laws against abortion violate 
state const violate state constitutions. You've already had a number of uh, state supreme courts rule on this basis. You know they're they're just making it up here in the same way Roe did. I mean, they're, 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 it's not as though these these constitutions contain provisions that can be read. Uh, you know, that have text that, that bears on abortion that can 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 fairly be read that way. But you have this whole um, uh, cast of uh, lawyers turned judges who are eager to advance the abortion agenda, and there is a real danger that you will see some laws in states struck down on, on state constitutional grounds. That said, most states um, make it relatively easy to amend the state constitution, so um, such a ruling would not have the, uh, the, the, the sticking power that, that, that Roe had for 50 years. And Ed, let me ask you, what um, what do you anticipate coming from the federal government? I've seen you've already tweeted a response to the Attorney General Merrick Garland saying that states can't ban the abortion pill. We know that the Biden administration is likely to be very aggressive in protecting um, uh, so-called access to abortion. Um, what do you anticipate there? And then, you know, take the opportunity to, to, to you know fill listeners in on anything else you think we need to be aware of, and um, and then we'll move to wrap up. Well, the federal government and, and the Biden administration will, will be very aggressive across the board, and I think they will try uh, anything they think they can get away with. Uh, you know, on, on the question of the the the, uh, the the abortion drug, it's not only that that FDA approval has has generally just been a prerequisite to something being uh, uh, marketed, not not a not a you know not not a, not an imprimatur that, that that preempts the states. Um, it's also the case that that that. Um, Federal statutes bar um, mailing abortion drugs, um, you, you know, using the U.S. Postal Service to mail abortion drugs, using any sort of private carrier to do so. So, uh, you know, these are laws that that were not enforced while Roe was pending, and I'm, and I'm sure that uh, Merrick Garland is not going to be eager to enforce them. But I think they, uh, you know, they 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 reinforce the notion that uh, uh, that that. Um, his concept that there's some sort of uh, federal protection um, for these uh, abortion drugs is, is, is not a sound one. Look, you're going to see efforts to um, use uh, federal lands uh, uh, for um, abortion clinics. You may well see uh, all sorts of uh, uh, penalties uh, for states that don't provide um abortion coverage or don't go along with with um, the administration's view. There are so many different uh, threats. Like I, I really haven't begun to think about all of them, but um, you'll see some fights in courts. But I, th I think, you know, the, the answer, uh, the ultimate answer here is that there ought to be a lot more leeway um, for us to um, to protect the lives of human beings. And as Zan mentioned, a number of states um, uh, will take advantage of that. Indeed, um, today there should be laws in at least nine states that, that will have gone into place, um, uh, laws that were that by their terms would take effect when Roe was overturned. Uh, these are laws that, that generally bar abortion with, with exceptions uh, from conception. And th th those laws should be, uh, should be in force uh, as of now. Uh, a handful of other laws just like that that will be um, take um, take effect in, in, in 30 days or in, or in one state in, in five days. Uh, you have legislative battles in other states. And look, I, I, I guess I disagree with the assessment that um, a lot of people have made. Folks say, oh, people have formed their views on abortion. And, uh, uh, you know, we should just take for granted that 
that things are going to, that you're only going to be able to do so much here. Look, I think things are very fluid. We've had 50 years in which no one has really ha had any reason. Most people have not had any reason to think seriously about this matter. Uh, I'm not saying that this fluidity, um, uh, you know, necessarily is going to cut our way, but it does mean that there's an opportunity to work to persuade our uh, friends and neighbors and fellow citizens and get people to to uh, address the barbarity of abortion and think about the ways that we can genuinely serve women um, other than by um, encouraging them to to kill their unborn babies. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it, that's what motivated um, Alexandra and and myself to, to write the book, um, Tearing Us Apart. It's um, we, we could count to five. We figured uh, that it was highly likely that um, today's ruling was going to come down at the end of June and it was going to open up a new chapter in the pro-life movement. People were going to be open to um, reasonable arguments about how abortion harms everything, how it's solved uh, and solves nothing. Um, and so, you know, th th that's what's inspired us in, in our work. I think you're exactly right to say that, you know, people uh, haven't settled up their opinions on this and they're open to persuasion. And now it's up to us to do that. Um, let me thank you um, for everything you've done for the pro-life cause, Ed, um, not just during your clerkship years, not just, you know, service uh, in, in the um, uh, Senate Judiciary Committee and in the White House, um, but, you know, helping us get the five justices on the court who uh, overturned Roe and Casey today. Um, and, and for our listeners, you can follow Ed on Twitter. It's at Ed Whalen EPPC. Uh, and Ed is, you know, more or less always doing Insta responses to what's going on in the legal world. And so, you know, in the days and weeks to come, responding to um, the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, you're going to want to look at Ed's Twitter account. And then his longer form essays, you can find at the Bench Memos uh, website at National Review. So if you just go to National Review and look for Bench Memos, um, you can find um, Ed's posts there. Uh, and so with that, Ed, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Life After Dobbs. Ryan and I are co-authors of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which you can order now. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. This podcast has been sponsored by the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can learn more about our work at our website, eppc.org, including our Life and Family Initiative.